If I were to ask you to define the ultimate experience, what would it be? Well, for New Zealand's Edmund Hillary, the ultimate experience occurred on May the 29th, 1953. That was the day when Sir Edmund set foot on top of the 29,032-foot summit of Mount Everest, becoming the first human to reach the pinnacle of planet Earth. For George Perry, an avid fisherman, the ultimate experience took place at Lake Montgomery, Georgia, on June the 2nd, 1932. On that memorable day, George landed the record for the largest bass ever caught in America. The record setter weighed 22 pounds, 4 ounces, and was 32 and a half inches long. Imagine the excitement for George trying to get that monster into the boat. I said for years that the ultimate experience for me would be to drive on the German Autobahn. Picture 5,000 miles of blacktop with no speed limit. What a rush. A dream come true. Well, my dream almost came true in 2006. I had gone to speak at a Calvary Chapel in Germany. I took Natalie, my daughter, with me, and I rented a car. And there we were on the Autobahn. I mean, cars flying past us doing 160 miles per hour. But we had a problem. Cheapskate Sandy had rented a little economy car. I think the thing ran on a rubber band. It topped out at 95 miles per hour. There we were with no speed limit, but we were driving a car with no speed. Moral of the story, when you dream, be specific. But here's my question for you this morning. What would be your ultimate experience? A vacation to an exotic destination? To go faster or higher or farther than anyone else? To invent the Iron Man suit? To sail around the world? (laughs) To walk on the moon? I mean, all these experiences would be thrilling indeed, but none would rival what is for all human beings the ultimate adventure, and that is an experience with God. Hey, think it through. A frail, finite, fallible, fragile, foolish human being rubbing shoulders with the indestructible, indescribable, infinite, infallible, incredible God? Wow, that would be quite an experience. Hey, we're talking the same God who hung the heavens and who parted the Red Sea and sent fire down from heaven and walked on water and even rose from the dead. To sense his presence, to be assured of his forgiveness, to behold his glory, to be touched by his tenderness, to savor his love, to hear his calming voice, to soar on a surge of his strength. Hey, without question, God is the ultimate experience. Well, I'm sure it's a thrill to stand on Mount Everest, but that's nothing compared to sitting in heavenly places in Christ. Catching the world's biggest bass is an adrenaline rush for sure, but it pales in comparison to fishing for men. And flying down the Autobahn at breakneck speed, even in the right car, plays a distant second fiddle to walking between the white lines of the will of God. I hope we'd all agree 
that to know God, to walk with Him is without a doubt the ultimate experience. Joseph Newton once wrote, Only God is permanently interesting. Other things we may fathom, but He outtops all our thoughts. After you've experienced God, everything else borders on boring. Oh, sure, there's always an attraction to the new and novel, but it never holds your attention for long. It's temporal. It's superficial. What's the big deal about walking on the moon after you've walked with the sun? Author Simone Weil made an observation about imaginary evil, the kind of evil portrayed in books or TV or movies. She calls it romantic and varied. While real evil, she says, is gloomy, monotonous, barren, and boring. But she says the opposite is also true with good. Imaginary good always comes across as boring. But real life good is always new and marvelous and intoxicating. And realize the origin of real good is a real God. I love how King David put it in Psalm 84 verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. David is saying, I would rather just hold the door so when it swings open and then shut, I can peek inside right when it's open so I can behold God's glory. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to have front row seats for the wickedness of this world. That's how David viewed it. As a child, I grew up in a Bible-believing church. I like to say I cut my teeth on the back of a pew. I did. When the kids at public school said pew and pinched their nose, I looked for a place to sit down. In fact, as a baby, the first word I ever uttered, it wasn't mama or dada. I think it was amen. I grew up in a Bible-toting, Scripture-quoting church. I knew the hymns, could quote the verses. I could recount the stories of the Old Testament. I could list the books of the Bible. I even had a timeline memorized for the book of Revelation. I could preach, teach, testify, collect an offering, pray in King James English, all the church stuff. Well, except sing. I was the poster child for a good churchgoer, a future deacon on the rise. And yet I had one major gaping omission on my spiritual resume. I didn't know God. I thought I knew him. I knew a lot about him. But I had never experienced God in a personal, intimate way. I was religious, but I lacked a relationship with God. And I was not alone. Countless people I grew up with majored on being religious, yet missed out on God. Rather than live refreshed and empowered and comforted in God's presence, we lived burned out and worn out and bummed out. You see, we had missed out. You know, religion is like playing house with your daughter. Some of you guys with daughters ever had this experience? You know, when Natalie was young, she would invite me to lunch. She always used her best china. She cooked up imaginary food for her and her dad, and it was always so scrumptious. I would chew and chew, 
and chew, even send my compliments to the chef. All the while, she and I would be telling each other what a nice lunch we'd had. I learned you can burn an hour or more playing house and never eat a morsel. And that's religion. You can go to church every Sunday, chew on the pastor's message, comment about the nice dinner, even compliment the chef, and yet no one ever eats. We can say we're talking and listening to God, but it's just pretend. Hey, if you're starving for the real deal, if you're hungry for a genuine relationship with God, then please pay attention to the last half of Ephesians chapter 3. For here Paul invites us to the quintessential experience. In verse 14, he begins his description of the ultimate experience. He writes, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now he's going to describe this experience, but notice first, Paul experiences God on his knees. This is what makes knowing God so beautiful, so wonderful. It's because it's so simple. If you want to experience God, all you have to do is drop to your knees in humility and ask. You don't have to coil your body into some kind of mantra position and chant mindlessly or walk barefoot over hot coals or go door-to-door distributing religious propaganda or pay thousands of dollars to order the definitive CD series from the latest guru. Oh, no. If you want to experience a living God, all you have to do is step over your pride, admit your sin, humble yourself, and bow to your knees, even if it's in your heart. Come to God thinking he owes you or you deserve to be there and the heavens will be like brass. But bow humbly and repent and God will reveal himself to you. In Luke chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, Jesus sends out an invitation. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Jesus can invite us to come to God because he's paid our admission. His blood covers our sins and gives us access to God. You see, Jesus left his home in heaven and made the long journey to earth, even to the cross, so that now you can come home to God in an instant, in the speed of prayer. Just fall on your knees, my friend, and ask and seek and knock. God is raring and ready to work in our lives. He's sitting on the edge of his throne, hoping we'll respond to his invitation. But first, we have to bow. In the last six verses here of chapter 3, Paul prays for the Ephesians and for us. And as he does, he lays out a vision of what God wants to accomplish in our lives. First, God wants to give us strength for our weakness. Second, he wants to give us a presence for our loneliness. Third, he wants to swap a love for our bitterness. And fourth, he wants to give fullness for our emptiness. And when you experience the strength of God and the presence of God and the love of God and the fullness of God, you have encountered the ultimate experience. In verse 16, Paul prays that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. 
Notice first, Paul prays for power, strength for our weakness. We were taught a truth in Sunday school, but have we really learned it? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Me weak, him strong. Have you learned that lesson? Spiritually speaking, we're bent reeds. We're pine trees swaying in the wind. We're as stout as a wet noodle. But Jesus promises to make us strong. I love what one man said of his relationship with God. He said, God had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. Bring your weakness to God and watch him add his power to your life. Paul prays for the spiritual strength in the inner man. And that's a strategic point to note. The focus of Paul's prayer and God's strength is the inner man, not necessarily the outer man. It's the spiritual portion of the person of which Paul is most concerned. Understand each of us is divided into two parts. We consist of body and soul. There's a physical side and there's a spiritual side to each of us. The inner man, the spiritual part of the person is the part that lives forever. Whereas the outer material person is the part that dies and reverts back to the dust. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 tells us, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. It's amazing to me how much time we spend on the outer man, the deteriorating part of our person, while we ignore the inner person of the heart that lives forever. Did you realize that every day in our country, Americans spend $300 million on new clothes for their body? Every day, $300 million. They scrub their teeth with 550,000 pounds of toothpaste. Americans garble 69,000 gallons of mouthwash every day. And to top it off, they consume 250,000 packs of breath mints. That all happens every day in America. Now, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't brush your teeth or gargle or pop an altoid in, your, altoid in your mouth before you come to church. In fact, if you've done that, we appreciate it. My point, though, is that we get obsessed with the outer man to the neglect of what's most important, the inner man. We're always praying for material stuff while ignoring our spiritual condition. We pray for safety or for healing or for prosperity or for God to get us out of a jam. But what about the spiritual health and prosperity and safety of our inner life? So what if our bodies are strong and our pockets are full? If our spirit is cold and bruised and emaciated? I talk to people all the time who are working hard to lower their cholesterol level and monitor their blood pressure and manage their weight gain, but they haven't given the health of their spiritual life a second thought. Guys, your body is going to die. Every one of us has an expiration date. Now, thankfully, it's not stamped on the outside of the package. But trust me, you have one. Why put all your effort in the part of you that's going to shrivel away? Why not focus on the inner man that's going to last forever? 
When the outer person grows weak and anemic and sick, we know how to treat it. We eat some chicken soup or we visit the doctor and fill a prescription. But what do we do when the inner man gets down and sick and overwhelmed? Some people try to escape the problem. Other people numb the pain or medicate or analyze and psychologize their way through the difficulty. Paul would tell us to pray. To pray that God will send his Holy Spirit to strengthen us with his might in the inner man. I think one of the most wonderful inventions of, modern, of our modern world are rechargeable batteries. When your batteries start to fade, you just plug them into the charger and they're good for another 100 hours or so. With standard batteries, you use them and you lose them. And I like to compare the outer man, these bodies, with standard batteries. Did you know we're going to use them and then we're going to lose them? But the spirit of man is rechargeable. Through prayer, we can plug into God's power and we can gain fresh energy. His spirit stimulates a spiritual current deep within us. Joy juice swells up in our hearts and mind. You know, it's interesting. The Greek word translated might here is dunamis. From that word, we get the English words dynamic or dynamo or dynamite. The Holy Spirit is our dynamite. He creates spiritual combustion inside us. Hey, you need to ask God to strengthen you with his might. I remember when those Reebok pumps came out. They were held as the breakthrough in basketball shoes. When the going got rough and you needed a lift, when you wanted to jump a little higher, run a little faster, all you had to do was just reach down and start pushing that orange button on the tongue of your shoe. And as you pumped it, it inflated the shoe's inner lining. I thought, this is so cool. At last, white guys can jump. In fact, they still make those Reebok pumps. You know, wearing a pair of those pumps meant that your foot received the same jolt as it did before, but now there was a cushion between the sole of your foot and the hard floor. And this is how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. When life gets jarring and pounding, you can pray, and the Holy Spirit will pump up your spirit. He'll fill the inner lining of your life. He'll provide you some spiritual cushion between your soul and this hardcore world. You still get jolted. Difficulties don't vanish. But now when you take the hit, you bounce rather than bruise. An inner strength is there to absorb the the blow. Well, Paul asked God to give the Ephesians strength for their weakness. But notice he also asked God to give them a presence for their loneliness. He prays in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Did you know God's presence can put an end to your loneliness? Once we had a young man here in the church. He gave his life to Jesus. He got involved in the fellowship. A little later, he enlisted in the Marine Corps. And I'll never forget, he was so nervous about boot camp. The thought that comforted him most was when I told him, John, from the moment you give your life to Jesus, you're assured that you will never be alone again. It's true. A Christian can never be alone. 
If you're in Christ, Jesus lives in you. You have a permanent roommate. Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Jesus has made your heart his home. You are his permanent residence. But you see, he's after more than just an address. Jesus wants a place where he can really feel at home. The word translated dwell, it means to settle down and to settle in. It carries the idea of unpacking your stuff and arranging the space to your liking. Jesus is tired of feeling like an outsider or even your guest. He wants to move into your life with all of his blessings. Stretch out his influence. He wants to get comfortable in you. You know, if I were to walk into your house this afternoon and you sort of said to me casually, well, why, Pastor Sandy, just make yourself at home. Oh, you wouldn't really mean that. You wouldn't really want me to make myself at home. For if I made myself at home, I'd take off my shoes and socks and throw them over in the corner of the living room. Then I'd raid the icebox. I'd shift some furniture around. I'd find a football game on television. I'd flop down on the couch and probably start picking my nose after a short time. (laughs) Then I'd reach down and start get the lint out between my toes. You don't believe me? Just ask Kathy. (laughs) It wouldn't take long before I made you so hopping mad, you'd shout at me at the top of your lungs and in angry tones and tell me to make like a banana and split. Well, Jesus really does want to make himself at home in your heart. He wants to move in with all of his stuff and unpack and take over and settle in and really feel at home. Hey, at first, it's great to have Jesus move in. Wherever he goes, he brings with him his love and his joy and his peace and his power. Jesus has some really cool stuff. And he shares it with his roomies. Jesus makes a great roommate. He's always up to something new and exciting. Believe me, Jesus knows how to have a good time. But the conflict comes when Jesus starts to make changes that are uncomfortable for you. He wants to rearrange the furniture a bit. He wants to clean out some smelly closets where you've stuffed some embarrassing things. Or he wants to reprogram your TV and what you've been watching or get rid of the porn on your computer. Throw out some of your CD collection. He doesn't really like that kind of music. At first, our tendency is to resist these kinds of changes. That is until we're reminded of who he is and what he's done for us. Oh my, Jesus is Lord. That means he's head honcho. He's boss. He's master and commander. And he's been so good to me. I want him to be comfortable, don't you? And yet initially... His adjustments produce some hesitancy and maybe some fear. I'm not quite sure where all this is headed. Let's say you had a new roommate and one day you came home to discover the old rug in your living room was gone. You're shocked. That rug has been in your family for years. Your mom changed your diapers on that rug. Oh, you knew it stunk. And you suspected your roommate was allergic to it. But you love that old rug. And you've kept it around for sentimental reasons. Man, you can't wait to get your hands on your roommate and demand that he retrieve your favorite rug. That is until the next day. You open the door. You walk inside your home. And to your amazement, the whole house has been recarpeted. New carpet. Plush pile, no less. It's beautiful. 
and you're so blown away, you'll never think another thought about that old rug. Now you can't wait to get your hands on your roommate so you can hug him and thank him for his generosity and the wonderful changes that he's made. And hopefully you see where I'm going with this parable. There's a lot of dirty habits that we maintain in our lives just for sentimental reasons, just because we've never lived without them. And yet they stink and Jesus is allergic to them and they really got to go. It's hard to turn loose of those patterns and attitudes, but trust me, it's worth it. For whatever Jesus takes from me, he promises to replace it with something infinitely better. His blessings are lavish and plush. You could never afford them on your own, but Jesus is generous. He desires to supply your life with the richest and with the best. The only thing that holds our Lord back from making even more changes for the better is our reluctance. We need to stop being scared. We need to stop holding back. We need to rise up in faith and turn it all over to Jesus. We won't be sorry. Remember Psalm 84 verse 11. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. Let Jesus make your heart his home. And you'll begin to experience the grace and glory and goodness of God. Well Paul prays next. That you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. You see, when we come to Jesus, he first grounds us in his love. But then we begin to grow up in his love. We root down, but then we shoot upwards. Here Paul asks God to give us love in place of our bitterness. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 is a great verse. It tells us this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. How do you know God loves you? Just look to the cross. I mean he sacrificed his only son. Most of us have been to the delivery room and we've experienced the thrill of cradling a newborn in our arms. Do you remember when your baby was born? You're so, so, you were so proud of that little baby. I mean, it was wrinkled and shriveled. Its head was kind of lopsided and contorted from sliding down the birth canal. It was covered with blood and goo. I mean, in the first few moments of life, a baby is one ugly little critter. I mean, if you're crawling around under your house and you see a newborn staring back, you'll call an exterminator or set a trap. I've only seen eight pretty newborns my whole life and they were named either Adams or Keller. But in the eyes of love, there is nothing more beautiful and more gorgeous and more precious than your baby. Now, what if you were in that delivery room cuddling and cooing over your newborn and suddenly a man with an assault rifle burst through the room and tried to snatch that baby from your arms? What would you do? I know what you would do. You would die holding onto your baby. There's no way that you would give up your newborn. You would fight and scrape to hold on to your child. And yet God said goodbye to his only son. 
He allowed Jesus to be mistreated, his body to be tortured, his hands and feet nailed to a board. Remember, Jesus was God's kid. God loved him. And yet he sacrificed Jesus for you. If God never did another thing for us, the cross alone is reason enough for us to be confident of his love for us. We would still have an overwhelming motivation to give our lives to him since he has given his life for us. You see, in Romans chapter 5, we're told that God's love was set out on the cross. But there's more to the story. In verse 5 of the same chapter in Romans, we're told, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now notice this. God's love is set out on the cross. But it is now poured out into our hearts by His Spirit. You see, an experience with God is like a skyscraper. Its peak reaches high up into the heavens, but only after its foundation has been poured deep below the surface. You begin the Christian life looking to Calvary's cross, but then the Holy Spirit brings God's love down from that cross and pours it out into every crevasse of your life. Faith in the love that Jesus has shown comes first. But then an experience of the love that Jesus will show comes next. I love the Old Testament analogy. After the priest had made the sacrifice, he took the carcass outside the gate and he had it burned. The ashes were then collected and they were mixed with water. And then with a leafy branch, he would sprinkle the mixture on whatever it was that he needed to dedicate. The effects and the merits of the sacrifice were transferred by the water. And this is why in the Bible the Holy Spirit is referred to as water. For he is the one who conveys the merits of what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago to our hearts today. Again, God's love is set out on the cross of Calvary. But his love is poured out by his Holy Spirit into our hearts. It's so vital to be grounded in the knowledge of God's love. But a foundation is not an end in itself. If all you are is rooted and grounded, you know what that makes you? All it makes you is a stump. That's why you need to sink your roots downward into the love of God. But now, send your shoots upward into that same love. God wants us to experience the full volume of his love, the width and length and depth and height of his love. He wants you to know how wide his love has reached to get you. He wants you to know how long his love will go to keep you. He wants you to know how deep his love is meant to save you. He wants you to know how high his love has gone to bless you. God wants us to comprehend his love, the full volume of his love. This word comprehend in Latin is a word prehendre. It means to grasp. Sometimes we say that a monkey has a prehensile tail because it can, it's designed, the tail's designed to clutch onto and grasp and pick up and hold on to stuff. He does that with his tail. And likewise, when we ask, God will give us a grasping ability. The capacity to latch on to his love. The Holy Spirit is able to line our hearts with spiritual Velcro. So the love of God when poured out will stick. We'll begin to sense it and feel it and experience it. And enjoy his love. Once a little boy fell into a vat of sweet tasting molasses. He prayed. 
Lord, make my capacity equal to my opportunity. God's love is like an ocean. You can take in all you want. The only limitation is the size of your bucket. May we comprehend the full extent of his love. When you read the Bible, don't just study it as a textbook. Read it like a menu. Read it with the intention of ordering from it, of tasting all its treats. God wants his love to be more than an abstract concept. God's love is a love that passes knowledge. What a line, by the way. I love that line. A love that passes knowledge. At first glance, that's sort of an odd statement, isn't it? To know something that passes knowledge. And yet, think it through. There are really only two means of discovery, either through study or through experience. Take a bowl of ice cream, for example. Oh, I love to take a bowl of ice cream. How do I know that ice cream tastes good? Well, I could put a drop of it on a slide and then place it under a microscope. I could run chemical tests on that ice cream and compare it to the composition of my taste buds. I could feed all of the data into a computer and it'll tell me what kind of sensory reaction I can expect when that ice cream hits my tongue. Or I could just take a bite. This is the approach that David recommends in Psalm 34 verse 8. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't you love it? God cuts to the chase. He invites us to taste and see. Rather than spend years of studying and researching God's love, as fulfilling as that would be, God makes it much easier. You can taste his love right now. This morning. You can open your heart to Jesus. You can see for yourself that his love is good. You can ask God to pour his love into your heart. God wants to swap love for bitterness. And then finally, Paul prays that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays and asks God to give the Ephesians and us a fullness for our emptiness. Now realize, our physical bodies are quite porous. It's not really evident to the naked eye, but your flesh is sort of like a sponge. Did you know your body consists of 92% water, only 8% solids? I suppose if you ever sprung a leak, you'd pop like a water balloon. But God has constructed our spirit in much the same way. The inner man is also very, very porous. Spiritually, we're permeable and we're absorbent. And our lives are easily influenced by external forces, either good or bad. We can get absorbed into something of interest. We're like those bounty paper towels. We're the quicker picker-uppers. The problem, though, is that we get wrapped up in things that really don't matter in the long run. Oh, we're a quicker picker-upper, all right, but we're quick to pick up stuff that eventually lets us down. And this is why life gets frustrating. This is why emptiness can overwhelm us. And yet God made you porous so that he could pour into your life his fullness. He wants to saturate you with himself. He wants to fill all of your empty spaces with his love and with his purpose. God wants to flood your life with his presence, his peace, his power, he wants to pump new life into your family and your marriage and your work and your friendships. God wants to fill your emptiness with his fullness. 
He desires for my life to be spiritually saturated. Totally absorbed with him. So full of him that I can't help but drip his goodness onto others. God wants us to be so soaked in his son. So saturated in his spirit. That when the world squeezes us. Outflows his love. And yet right now. When you get squeezed. What comes out? Perhaps anger. Maybe hatred. Often worry or envy or impatience. If that's what flows out of your life, apparently that's the stuff that you've been in which you've been soaking. How many of us have been marinating in negativity, absorbing the wrong attitudes? Don't you think it's time for us to pray and ask God to replace our emptiness with his fullness? It's interesting. Paul closes this prayer with praise. Verse 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. Above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. To all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice Paul likes to pray according. In verse 16, he prayed according to the riches of God's glory. Now here in verse 21, he prays according to the power that works in us. Paul loved to pray according or in proportion to God's riches and power. You know, Paul could have prayed out of God's riches. But he prays according to God's riches. And there's a difference. Suppose I was a billionaire and I gave you 10 bucks. I'd be giving out of my riches. But if I gave you a million dollars, I'd be giving according to my riches. See, Paul doesn't just pray for a portion, a portion of God's blessing. He prays for a proportion. Hey, Paul is praying big, in other words. And why shouldn't, why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we pray big? Hey, realize we have a big-hearted God. He loves us with big grace. He's shown it in a big way. Let me close with a final look at verse 21. We have a God who will do what we ask, but more. He'll do all that we ask, but more. He'll do all that we ask or think, but more. He'll do above all that we ask or think, but still more. He'll do abundantly above all that we ask or think, but our Lord will do even more than that. He'll do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Paul stacks superlative on top of superlative to help us realize that our God wants to do for us far, far more than we ever could have imagined. If we'll ask. If you're looking for the ultimate experience to know God, To experience his strength for your weakness and his presence for your loneliness and his love for your bitterness and his fullness for your emptiness. Then be like Paul and bow a knee. Better yet, bow your heart and your life and pray.